Very fitting song uh, to lead us into this time in God's Word, considering that this month our sermon series has been taking a look at the Old Testament signposts that indicate forward towards the day of Jesus Christ, His advent, His life and ministry, His suffering, His death, and His resurrection. And so that song, of course, that we just sang is an, is an encouragement to those from Hebrew faith to think about the promises of the Jewish Messiah that God promised. And of course, we are on the other side of those promises. We have seen the realization of Christ's advent, that He has come, that He has lived triumphantly, that He has uh, died in such a way that the sins of all who had put their faith and trust in Him have been put to death. And so we are grateful that we can sing of that song knowing that it is not just a future promise anymore. It is a realized promise. There are yet promises to come, and that's why that last verse of the song we do sing that He will come again with us to dwell uh, because the Lord God has told us that He will not stay away from us forever, but is preparing a place for us in heaven. In the meantime, we are to worship His great name. We are to think rightly about Him, to, to teach rightly about Him so that others can know the true and living God of Scripture. And we're to rejoice in the ways that He dwells with us here on earth spiritually and in the Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've got note sheets. Hopefully you've got one. Uh, pencils as well. And if you need the Bible so that you can be following along with what we're reading and studying this morning, please raise your hand and we'd be happy to bring one to the seat that you're sitting in. Very early in the church's history, very soon after Jesus ascended into heaven following his death and resurrection, and very soon after the apostles began to preach the gospel to the world, crooked and untrue ways of thinking about the gospel began to compete with the true message of salvation. Remember that the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Galatians had to warn the Christians in that city that if anyone preaches a gospel other than what Paul and the other apostles had originally brought to them, that that person was to be considered accursed for the deceitful message that they were pushing, a dangerous and crooked message that fell short of the true gospel. That meant, of course, that there were other false gospels out there, things to be aware of, things to look out for, even at that very early time of the Christian church. The presence of these false gospels necessitated the church to establish ways that might help them to determine whether someone was in agreement with the most very basic and, of course, essential elements of the real gospel. One of the tools that they came to use were called creeds. Creeds are short, very clear statements of belief that a person could quickly and easily confess to somebody else in order to show them what they believed about the very fundamental elements of the gospel message. One such creed that came to be used very early in the church and has been beloved to the church for thousands of years now is called the Apostles' Creed. And so I'd like to read this to you this morning. The Apostles' Creed is probably... Uh, not something new to you, but it might be a while since you've heard it. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. The, the word Catholic there meaning universal, not referring to the Roman Catholic Church, but the church throughout the world and throughout time. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life 
everlasting. Amen. Very brief. Just three slides on a PowerPoint. Very easy to memorize and to share with someone else to show them just what you believe, the very fundamentals of your core understanding of what the gospel means and what it communicates to us. And very scripturally sound, all of those words rooted in the word that God has given to us. This kind of statement could be useful to help two people who were trying to live according to the true gospel determine whether they both believed in essentially the same things about God and God's plan to save sinners. No doubt there are many more things that could be said about God, but this creed became widely used as a bare standard for orthodoxy. And I want you to notice that within this statement that has been distilled down for us to some very basic truths that need to be presented in confession of a real belief, the church fathers included this confession that Jesus was born of a virgin. We sometimes call this doctrine the virgin birth, but in reality, and as this Apostles' Creed affirms, it really is about not just the birth of Jesus, but his virgin conception, that Jesus came into this world as no other man has, for he did not have an earthly father. Why did the early fathers decide that the details of Jesus' unusual entrance into our world was such an important inclusion in this fundamental confession of belief? I want to give you a couple reasons this morning. First of all, the virgin conception of Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. That is right in line with what we have been studying these last few weeks. The Old Testament in many places clearly pointed forward to God's plan for redemption through Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 7. If you've got your Bible and you want to open there to Isaiah 7, I'll be reading just a few verses here in a moment to set this passage up in Isaiah 7. There is an, a king in Judah who is not very faithful to the Lord, a man who is considered, uh, after the fact, quite wicked indeed. Uh, he reigned over Judah, the southern kingdom, and was on the verge of panic as we get to Isaiah 7 because the northern kingdom of Israel, which we recently learned through Hosea, was far from the Lord, was rebelling against him, had allied with a pagan nation called Syria. And this northern kingdom's king, King Pekah, was laying siege to Jerusalem. So they were trying to capture Judah's capital. They were going against their own countrymen in the south. So Ahaz, this king, who's not very faithful to the Lord, is, is scrambling. He doesn't know what to do. The Lord God sends to him Isaiah the prophet. This prophet goes to Ahaz to assure him and to let him know that no matter what these other nations are trying to do, God is going to provide a way for you to get through this intact. He offers a sign unto Ahaz. He says, ask for a sign. And Ahaz, trying to look spiritual, says, oh, I don't dare ask for a sign from the Lord because I don't want to test him. Well, the Lord just told you to ask him for a sign, so you're not actually testing him. You would be obeying him to ask him for a sign. But this false veneer of, of holiness doesn't dissuade Isaiah, the prophet. Whether he asks or not, he's got a prophecy, and he's going to give it to this king. And so God offered this sign to Ahaz, and the prophecy, I'm going to read just a part of it, in Isaiah chapter 7 is very relevant to what we're learning today, starting in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Of particular interest to King Ahaz would have been verses 16's promise that Syria 
and the northern kingdom would soon desert the land. But of particular interest to us is the curious prophecy of verse 14, a prophecy of a son who would be born to a virgin whose name would be called Emmanuel. Now there is some controversy regarding the word translated virgin in this text. And so in the original Hebrew language, this, this word is Alma. And it actually can be translated in two different directions. It could indicate that a woman was a virgin, a young lady who had not had sexual relations with a man. But it can also be used to simply describe a young maiden of childbearing age. And so here's the controversy. Alma, this Hebrew term, does not have to be virgin. If Isaiah is simply trying to say that one day a young woman would conceive and give birth to a child who would be called Emmanuel, who would have this special name, and that this child will know how to refuse evil and choose good, as verse 15 goes on to say, then maybe Isaiah wasn't even talking about Jesus. And some biblical interpreters would say that he wasn't. You might even read in some places that if Isaiah really intended to prophesy about the future virgin conception, then he would have used a different Hebrew word, the word that is pronounced beth Ulah. However, that argument is shaky at very best, because Beth Ulah can also mean either virgin or simply young woman of childbearing age. It's not a word that only means virgin. So how do you know which term the author intended? You have to look for contextual clues. You have to look at the words around that word to see what God was trying to communicate to us. So what does the context of Isaiah 7.14 tell us? Let's look at it again. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. How is the birth of a child by conventional means, if this word is not to be translated virgin, if it's only to mean young woman of childbearing age, how is that a sign from God himself? A sign is a miraculous display of God's involvement in the affairs of men. When the disciples were given the power to cast out demons and to heal the sick, that's a sign. When Jesus displays power over weather and calms the storm, when he has the power to speak and physical things around him change and obey him, that's a sign. When Jesus curses the fruitless fig tree and a couple days later they pass by and it is wilted and dead, that is a sign. These are clear, extraordinary examples of God doing something very out of the ordinary unexplainable by the laws of nature and the experiences of men. A young lady of childbearing age having a baby is not really a sign. Even if that baby has a noble name and grows to have particularly clear discernment about what is good and what is evil, those are not out of the ordinary or even specific enough to be classified as signs. But a woman conceiving a baby in her womb apart from the normal means by which every other human baby is brought into this world, makes all who hear of it stop and answer the question, how could this possibly come to pass? Indeed, this sign is so extraordinary, ever since the power of the Holy Spirit caused it to come to pass, people have been doubting that it could even be possible. Everyone including the very man who is betrothed to be married to this young virgin in the first place. Matthew's record tells us that Joseph became so troubled at the news that Mary, his betrothed, was with child that he made plans to divorce her quietly. Why? Because he was convinced that a woman cannot have a baby apart from sexual relations. And so he had to conclude 
that she had been unfaithful to him. That is, of course, until an angelic messenger revealed to Joseph in a dream that Mary's extraordinary story was indeed true. In order to strengthen your confidence that Isaiah 7.14 certainly does foretell the special birth of Jesus, let us consider some more significant evidence. Unlike the Hebrew language of Isaiah, the Greek language that the New Testament was written in has separate specialized words for young maiden and virgin. And everywhere in the New Testament that speaks of Mary's status, she is described with the specialized term parthenos, which means a young woman of fertile age who has not had relations with a man. Clearly, the New Testament writers were not going to allow any confusion regarding the miraculous nature of Jesus' conception. But there are even older documents that support the connection between Isaiah 7.14 and the birth of Christ. We can look to the Septuagint. Long before Jesus was born, the Greek language was already very widespread in use. The Roman Empire was spreading. Their military force had allowed them to conquer many peoples and many lands. And so as they spread along with it, their influence and their culture spread. So much so that up to 300 years before the New Testament time, the Old Testament was being translated into this Greek language. Likely around 200 years before Jesus, the Septuagint began being widely used by Greek-speaking Jews. The Septuagint is a respected and important translation of the Old Testament scriptures into the Greek language. And if you look up Isaiah 7.14 in the Septuagint, the word that those early translators used was not korasion, which would have been the generic Greek term for a young girl. It was parthenos, the specific term for a virgin. So the earliest translators of Hebrew to Greek were clear in seeing the Isaiah passage as referring to a virgin, not a maiden. And this is somewhere around 200 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, I admit we should be careful not to necessarily consider the Septuagint to be a divinely authorized translation, but it is historically significant to see that the understanding of the signs spoken of in Isaiah 7.14 was clearly the unusual divine fertilization of a young virgin girl. Thirdly, we cannot ignore the fact that the divinely inspired New Testament writers clearly interpreted Isaiah 7.14 as speaking about the divine conception that led to Jesus' birth. So let's turn now to the New Testament. Let's look in Luke chapter 1. Starting here in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The language used in Luke 1.31 seems very likely to be a reference to the Isaiah 7.14 passage. In addition, the Isaiah passage is addressing a prophecy concerning the house of David. And Luke goes out of his way to make sure that his readers understand that the virgin birth was part of the fulfillment of this specifically Davidic prophecy. Again, in Luke 1, 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to the God, from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the city of David. We see it again in verses 32. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And in verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forevermore. And of his kingdom, that Davidic kingly line, there will be no end. But if Luke wasn't explicit enough, in his allusions to Isaiah 7.14, Matthew has no qualms about removing all doubt. In the book of Matthew chapter 1, verses 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew, in writing his gospel, makes it directly clear that Mary's virgin conception is the fulfillment of that Isaiah prophecy that we read earlier. Last night, if you weren't able to join us for our Christmas Eve service, uh, Pastor Paul in his sermon reminded us of an important hermeneutic principle that leads us to make the best sense of God's holy word. It's called the apostolic hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is just a fancy word for a strategy in reading, and everyone has a hermeneutic. If you've never thought about hermeneutics, it might be that your hermeneutics are pretty loose and not very helpful to you. But the more we walk with the Lord God, the more we develop strategies on how to read the word properly and accurately. And the apostolic hermeneutic is one of those tools that gr brings greater clarity to the people of God. That means that when we are making sense of the Old Testament, we don't ignore that God has given us in the New Testament a more advanced and progressed view of the big picture of history. What God progressively reveals to us in the New Testament aids in our interpretation of the Old Testament. And here Matthew, under inspiration of the same Holy Spirit that drove Isaiah's writing 750 years earlier, tells us that the correct way to interpret Isaiah is to see it as a holy signpost pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the baby that Isaiah 7 was talking about. And this virgin birth carries significance far beyond just its novelty. Of course, it was something out of the ordinary. It was something supernatural and miraculous. But God didn't do it just to show off. He did it for specific reasons. The virgin conception of Jesus Christ is a necessary condition for Jesus to stand guiltlessly in the place of sinners. It is necessary. The unique circumstances of Jesus' birth is one of the core doctrines listed in the Apostles' Creed because it carries a tremendous significance to the work that Jesus was able to accomplish in his earthly ministry. Why did Jesus humble himself? Why did he take on a human nature? Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came, why? To seek and to save the lost. 
the work that Jesus came to do was distinctly a redeeming work. For God to have saved the lost, he needed to take care of the debt of sin that the lost had accrued for themselves. God is a good and a holy God. And so his actions cannot make a mockery of justice. He cannot pretend that these people that he wants to draw near to himself are not filthy. He cannot keep them sinful and rebellious and wicked. He must wash them somehow. He must purify them. He must satisfy the demand for justice that their sins cry out for. There was no other representative in the world who could turn the tide for humanity. All of humanity is touched by the original, original sin of Adam and therefore carries guilt into this life even before a person inevitably commits sin of his own. Every one of us is born under the curse of sin. And so God had to intervene because all of us were already cursed by sin. All of us were already affected by this great sin. God must intervene and bring a new representative. But that representative had to exhibit perfect faithfulness. And who can exhibit perfect faithfulness except for God himself? And so God in choosing to redeem man, had to enter into the creation that he had made. And taking on the nature of man, God the Son had to accomplish what Adam the first man had failed to do. The scripture tells us our sin debt came from a man named Adam. And it shows us how it is transferred to us in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. What do we learn here? We learn that Adam is the beginning of our sin problem. You might ask yourself, well, isn't Eve the beginning of our sin problem? Not exactly. And for, and for good reason, we must make this distinction. Yes, Eve sinned first, right? But Eve is nowhere described as the representative federal head of mankind in Scripture. She was not the representative upon whom the fate of humanity rested. That is a role that Adam played. Eve was under Adam's leadership. It was his decision that was going to chart the course for the rest of humanity. Think about it like this. You remember the story of David and Goliath, right? When you were a little child in Sunday school, I'm sure you heard the stories and saw the felt characters battling it out on the battlefield. Why did that battle have to happen? Well, it happened the way that it did because in those days, in order to spare the widespread loss of life that a giant battle would often produce, two armies could come to an agreement whereby each one would send a representative their mightiest warrior out to the battlefield. And instead of those two large armies clashing together and spending tremendous resources of, 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 of weaponry and time and blood, those two men would fight to the death. And whichever representative won the battle, his army was victorious at that point. The other army would then subjugate themselves under the heel of that victorious winner. That is representative headship on a small scale. Adam was for us a representative head, a federal head for mankind, the first man who would, through his leadership, determine whether mankind would be obedient to the Lord and experience the blessings of the tree of life or that they would be rebellious against the Lord and turn away from his command and have to be separated from God. 
And so as our representative, Adam, when he follows after the pattern of Eve and eats of that fruit in the garden, he condemns us to a fate that we cannot avoid. We are guilty of his sin. And we are doomed to commit our own sin as well. We can't look back and say, well, God is unrighteous for condemning me for someone else's sin. I didn't commit that sin. No, he was your representative. And even if he had not sinned, guess what you're going to do without fault? You're going to sin, every one of you. I'm going to sin. Each human being who draws breath is born into sin and then commits sin on their own. And so the scripture tells us where our sin debt comes from. Psalm 51.5 then rightly proclaims, this is David speaking, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's before he's had an opportunity to go out and break any of the laws of God. He carries the stain of Adam, his federal head, even before he's drawn a breath. The significant theologian Augustine of Hippo argued that the passing on of sin was somehow a biological transaction. He speculated that what a male contributes to the material of new life in his, in his wife's womb carries the stain of sin somehow. And I don't, I don't know if he had the language of DNA or anything like that, but the logical conclusion of that thought is somehow it's genetic. And that's an interesting theory, but God's word does not suggest that the transaction is seminal in any way. According to Romans 5.12, we are to understand the transmission of guilt from Adam to humanity by way of fathers to their offspring as a legal transaction, one that transfers responsibility from a representative to the one that they represent. But here is where the virgin birth of Jesus becomes more than a sign for us. It is a legal, theological necessity. Had Jesus entered into the world in an unremarkable, conventional way, he would have had his own legal debt to atone for, for he would have inherited the legal guilt of his father at birth. This would make him incapable of offering up his own life in place of ours, since his own human life would be tainted and tied to the sin of Adam. It would need to die a death commensurate with his inherited guilt. The fact that Jesus lacked an earthly father frees Jesus from any of that inherited guilt, brothers and sisters. He is legally a blank, a blank slate, a second Adam upon whom the fate of any covenant fellowship, uh, followers who come after him would rest. If Jesus were to prevail in a covenant of works, he would secure a victory for his people that would nullify the sting of death and sin. And really, we can't look at him as a blank slate because he carries into this world the divine righteousness of the second person of the Trinity. Earlier in this sermon, I mentioned that the virgin birth was unprecedented that Jesus came into earth in a way that no other human being had. But there's one real exception to that. Adam and Eve also came to earth without an earthly father, right? The first man was made from the dust of the earth, and God breathed into him a living spirit. And so Adam, the first man, having no father but God, inherited no legal problems upon his birth. Jesus, having no earthly father, likewise came into this world with no previous debt, no inherited sin. But we know that what they did with that opportunity was polar opposite. Adam, with this freedom, chose to disobey God. Christ, with his freedom, obeyed in every respect. Romans 5, 18 through 21, tells us more about this situation, this legal condition that affects those who are fallen and necessitates the salvation that Jesus brings. Therefore, 
As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness." leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When I read this passage, friends, I have to hold back my own emotions because as I read this declaration, I understand that it contains the very foundation of hope for the sinner. If you believe in Christ, this debt, which is far too great for you to ever get out from underneath of, can be paid for by God himself. Though we were condemned by the sins of Adam, and of course by our own sin that followed in his footsteps universally and without fail, then there is a singular hope. Not that I would somehow rise above the calamity that my sin has made for me, but that I might come under the representative of a better Adam, a better federal head. The thrill of hope speaks of the unthinkable possibility that God has made a, a way to release man from his Adamic debt and to put him under a different and in every way better federal head in Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he was getting ready to suffer and die in our place in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed and asked that God would protect himself and his disciples from the many hardships and temptations that would come their way. And as he considered the weight of what he was about to do, he even cried out in his human nature to the Father. said, God, if there is any other way for this salvation to be accomplished, then let this cup pass from my lips. And the answer that he received back from the Father, that prayer being offered humbly, God, not my will, but your be done, the answer that he received back from the Father is that, son, there's no other way. There is one way. And that way is the road to Calvary. The beginning of our service this morning was marked by Jeff Strother reading to us a very important passage in Philippians chapter 2. A passage that has come to be known as the kenosis passage because it describes to us the mind-boggling fact that Jesus, who has eternally been God, was willing to empty himself in such a way that he could enter into the limited confines of the broken and sinful world that we live in. And he did so by taking to himself a complete and true human nature. Philippians 2 is the Apostle Paul reflecting on the wonder of the utterly unique work that this God the Son did when he infiltrated our state of being and became like us in order to give his perfect life for us. And so if you'd like to turn in your scriptures to Philippians chapter 2, I'd like us to put our eyes on that passage before we conclude today. Starting in verse 5. I'll read through to verse 10. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name 
so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Great minds have grappled over the far-reaching implications of this passage. How can infinite God take on the finite form of mortal man? How can God, who is everywhere at the same time, be born in one place, in an obscure little town called Bethlehem, no less? How can he, who knows all things, be born into a manger and have to be swaddled by his parents and cared for in every second? How could he grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men as Luke 2.52 says that he did? How can Jesus, who cannot sin and is forever holy, at the same time be tempted in all ways like us? How can God die? And having suffered and died on behalf of his people, how can he raise himself again from the grave? These kinds of questions should be wrestled with, friends. We need to process the difficult facts slowly and carefully make every effort to understand what they mean about the complex and brilliant character of God the Son and by extension how they impact our doctrine and theology. The kenosis, this emptying of himself, shapes the way that we understand who, who we understand Jesus to be. And it shapes our, our comprehension of what he has accomplished by humbling himself. But it must do more than that. It must do more. It must cause us to step back with a deep groaning sigh of heart and confess that while we don't understand every detail of how Jesus accomplished these lofty things, we see enough to understand that he is worthy, worthy of glory, worthy of honor and praise for this unprecedented thing that he has done. I am not here to simply teach you something today. This morning's sermon is not an invitation just to add more knowledge to your finite portfolio of facts and data. I am here to declare to you that the God who made all things is vastly greater than you. The God who made all things is of an entirely different order in nature than you are. But because he is merciful and just and loving, he personally breached the gap that existed between what is infinite and what is finite so that he could enter into your existence and save sinners. And he is worthy of worship for this. He should be exalted for this. His name should be revered throughout the world for this. Even God the Father gives glory to the Son for what he has done. Shouldn't you? Shouldn't I give glory to the Son for this? Again, verse 9 in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of Jesus' willingness to take on flesh and fulfill the important requirements of the law on our behalf, God the Father has highly exalted Jesus. He stepped right into the perfect plan that God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son had made before time even began. And so God the Father has lifted him up, displaying his Son as the pinnacle of respect and integrity. God has given to Jesus all authority on heaven and on earth to reign as Lord over all things, assigning to Jesus a position of unparalleled honor and dignity. The, verse, the very name of Jesus has become hallowed and carries with it the holy gravity 
of respect and love because of the person and the work of the one to whom it is attached. Jesus has been lifted up in the records of time as a man above all men because he was more than a man. He has been declared to be Emmanuel that Isaiah 7.14 pointed to hundreds of years earlier. Jesus is God with us in flesh, having come not only to dwell among us, but to accomplish a reconciling work among the people of God so that those who say amen and come and adore him on bended knee might personally be impacted by the saving and transformational power of what Jesus has done. So let us, church, exalt the name of Jesus in light of all that has been revealed about him, in light of the deep impact that he has had on history, and in light of the fact that if it weren't for the victory of Jesus, the Christian would have no hope for the future. Apart from him, we would have only judgment. If you are not trusting in Jesus today, on this holy day, the scriptures have declared to you the difficult position that you find yourself in this morning. You have inherited a debt from Adam, the first man, that you cannot pay back to God except by your eternal judgment. You have proven that God is not unjust to judge you according to the sins of Adam's failures because you have failed in the very same ways that he did. You have broken the laws of God and you violated his commands. And if you were to stand before the one who gave you life today, you would have no good argument to persuade him that he should spare you, that he should forgive your sin, for you have contributed to the darkness of the world that is such an offense to him. But there is yet hope for you. Repent of your sin. Confess these sins to God and acknowledge this morning that though there seemed to be no way for you to be near to this God, God has made a way by sending his only begotten son. Cast your, your cares upon Jesus Christ. Trust that the life that Jesus lived was worthy and perfect. Trust that the death that Jesus died was a sufficient death to pay the penalty of the sins that you owe and that everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus owed. Cry out to God for mercy and be born again by the saving power of His grace. There is no better gift that you could ever receive than a reconciled relationship with God through Christ. There is no better gift that you could receive than God washing your guilt away by His own blood. There is no better gift that you can have than to have God look at you and say, forgiven, clean and righteous. You're my son. You're my daughter. Just ask anyone here who has tasted of that redemption. If you've been saved by the blood of the lamb, you who were very far off from God and headed to judgment have seen your future completely rewritten by Jesus. You have assurance where you used to have despair. And this God who you used to rage against in rebellion has become your loving and faithful father. So let us, like the shepherds who left their flocks to come and see the wondrous sign that the angel hosts had told them about, let us worship the newborn king. Let us, like the wise men who traveled a great distance to see the product of this mysterious prophecy, let us bow down in humble reverence to this holy one in an attitude of worship and adoration. Let us bring the gift, not of gold or of incense or of myrrh, but of a humbled and contrite heart before him. Let us treasure these truths in our hearts like Mary, his earthly mother, did. Let us be humbled of mind when we consider the absolutely remarkable virgin conception that brought divinity into our human existence 
and set the stage for the great atonement of the spotless lamb. And may the beauty of God's plan of redemption begun in the earliest pages of scripture and fulfilled in the advent of Jesus and the completion of his redeeming work be the sweetest source of contentment and joy to us both today and every day for eternity. Amen. Pray with me, please. God, we praise you. Thank you. You have revealed your impressive self to us through the pages of Scripture. And for those whom you have set aside for salvation, you have written them on the heart, God. You have cast aside this rebellion and you have made us a new creation. Father, there are so many more that need to hear of this. There are so many more that need to bow the knee to you. And I pray, God, that they would not think of salvation as some act whereby their freedom is stripped away and they're made utter slaves for the rest of their lives in some negative sense, Lord God. But help them to see that when we come to the light of Christ, when the Holy Spirit softens our heart and makes us humble and strips that pride away so that we might be honest enough with ourselves to confess to you our sin, that to become a citizen of your kingdom does mean that we serve you forever, but we do so in joy knowing that we are serving what is love and what is good and what is truth. You keep no good thing from your people. And so we praise you, Lord God, that you even called us together today to worship you and to reflect on this beautiful reality that throughout the Old Testament, your prophets, these early fathers, all pointed towards the fulfillment of Scripture in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we profess that today. Help this creed that we read earlier be the expression of our heart, the communication of what we believe. May we as your people do more than just memorize creeds, God. Let us live them out in our obedience to you and our respect for the word. Thank you for being perfect and keeping the law where we fell short, Jesus. Thank you for forgiving us when we fall short, even as redeemed believers. Thank you for promising that you will one day return again and that this reign that you have established, the fact that you are at the right hand of God the Father, even now with authority over all things, might be completely fulfilled in your return and the rebuilding of the heavens and the earth. We look forward to that time. And in the meantime, God, we, we bless your name with worship and thank you for blessing us with the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.